Okay, welcome. I'm so delighted that you're here. It's such a pleasure. On this beautiful day, instead of out doing gardening, you're here listening to poetry. Well, listening to poetry is better, right? Right. <laughs> we have two readers with us today. Unfortunately, Lalita and Rona couldn't be with us, but wonderful, wonderful poets, and I hope you enjoy them. They will be signing their books after, by the way, downstairs, so I really encourage you to purchase copies of their books. Our first reader is Danuta Koshika, and she's the author of two recently published books, Face Half Illuminated, a book of poems, translations, and prose published by Apprentice House 2014, and Oblige the Light, winner of the fifth annual Harris Poetry Prize published by City Lit 2015. She is the translator for two books by Lydia Kosk, Reshapings, and Sweetwater Saltwater. Her poems, translations, essays, and interviews have appeared in, U- in the USA and throughout Europe. She is the co-editor of Lock Raven Review <clears throat> and a founding member of the DC ALT Association of Literary Translators. A biochemist by training, she is also a photographer whose work has been exhibited in individual and group shows and used for book covers. She grew up in Poland and lives in Maryland. And now just a word about the prize that Donka, as I didn't do better by, has won. Launched in 2009, the Harris Poetry Prize is named in honor of Clorinda Harris. Clorinda? (laughs) An eminent Baltimore poet and publisher, and she is the editor-director of Brickhouse Books, Maryland's oldest literary press. And the judge for the contest was Michael Saltzman. And Michael, I think you have a few words to say. Thank you, Barbara. It's a great pleasure to uh, introduce this year's winner of the uh, fifth Harris Poetry Prize. Uh, Nuda was born in 1949 in Lublin, the ninth largest city in Poland, about 100 miles southeast of uh, Warsaw. Uh, and very close to the Soviet border. Uh, she is greatly influenced uh, by her childhood, her European heritage, uh, and even in the way that she constructs the syntax of the poems and the, the way she uses English, the way she translates uh, words uh, from Polish uh, into English and in reverse, Uh, She's a very prominent translator uh, of uh, poetry, including the work uh, of her mother. Uh, And she grew up listening to the poetry of Poland, including the romantic poets such as Adam Mikwitz and other uh, famous uh, poets of the region. Uh, She earned a PhD in biochemistry uh, and carried out medical research, uh, having won a fellowship from the Muscular Dystrophy Association. Uh, and so her European uh, origins, uh, her medical connections, uh, were all things that uh, made it difficult for me to be totally uh, neutral uh, in looking at her manuscript. Uh, but I have to say that it was, uh, as all of our winners have been, Uh, down through the years, uh, the leading manuscript uh, that I saw. Uh, 
She is very uh, interested in uh, some of the past poets laureate of Maryland and has translated their work, Josephine Jacobson, Lucille Clifton, and Linda Paston. Uh, the poems in the winning manuscript cover almost the entire period of her serious engagement with the art form from 1997 to 2011. And there is an epigraphic imagist quality to many of her poems uh, that I think uh, go back even uh, to H.D. Uh, Hilda Doolittle, uh, a prominent member of the circle around Ezra Pound uh, at the start of modernism. And I think you will feel that and hear that uh, quite uh, directly. I'm not going to go over many of the stunning phrases in the poems uh, because you will soon hear them. uh, And in the introduction to the volume, you'll be able to compare your favorites with mine. Uh, But it's better to listen to the poetry uh, than uh, to the judge. Uh, So uh, it's my great pleasure uh, to introduce this year's winner, Danuta Koskosichka, really one of the most prominent poets now, I think, working in our area. Well, thank you very much, Michael. That was very uplifting. (laughs) So if I start floating, don't be surprised. (laughs) Uh, I... uh, want of course to start with thanking all of you to for being here on um, this very special actually day not only in my life but also in Baltimore's life and um, as was we have heard words heal and literary arts heal so I think that uh, we will um, do what we can to help in the healing of, of Baltimore can you hear me all right um, I feel uh, very honored. It's it's a big big thing for me, as uh, you have heard. I I came here as a scientist, uh, you know, as a PhD in biochemistry, and here I am, a poet and translator. And um, I actually was uh, at the very first edition of this um, prize when uh, Laura Chavan won the first. Uh, Award and I was here and I was so impressed by Michael and the whole situation and how how it was introduced and how beautiful the book was. So I was thinking, uh, one of those days I want to submit. (laughs) And here I am with this beautiful book. It says here the winner of the prize. (laughs) So, Michael, my heartfelt thanks to you as a judge and also for for your time and uh, comments you gave me. To mention the beautiful introduction here, very insightful he you wrote for me. Also, I would like to thank uh, Clarinda for being here. I'm very honored. And uh, Greg Wilhelm, who is not here, but he uh, uh, put this book together. And yes, I want to brag. The cover is my photo and the collage I made. And this is the first book that Michael mentioned and... Uh, Barbara, it also has my cover. <laughs> now I, I want to show, um, say a few words about this book, just because it's a, it's it's quite different. This was put by Apprentice House, but it consists of my poems, my translations of my mother's poems, and two pieces of prose that kind of explain how I, the scientist, became a poet and translator, and also gives my take on what uh, how I understand the art of translating. 
There is one poem that's in both books. It's um, titled My Mother at Twelve. And it had to be in both books because the first book is like a conversation between mother and daughter across uh, Atlantic. I mean, mom lives in Poland and I live here, though I go back and forth, but still. So that's the reason. And this book is more... Um, the, the poem had to be here for family history, I think. What I'm doing, I'm going back and forth between Poland and USA in this in this book, which is what I'm doing really in my life because I, I live, you know, like in two worlds, at least two worlds. I, I hope I thank everybody. <laughs> but, but so if I remember, then I will. Okay, so I'll, um, I thought... Um, I start with the very first poem, which is a very good introduction to how I stayed here and how I, my situation, what my situation is that going back and forth. I have to kind of. The, thi the thin blue line between still and alive. In the art gallery, students create moving paintings. They stand or sit by their chosen portrait on the wall. Same pose, same splendid costume. Here a blue sash, a sword, there a yellow rose. At the strike of one, they stare, casually walk away, leaving the background and the still selves. I come alive on the background of a jet plane, pierced with a row of doors. The farthest opens on a sandy Mazovian plain with Chopin's weeping willow. My hand reaches through the door, brings out a clover leaf, lilac flower, grain of sand, a walnut from the tree guarding the whitewashed house. I glance ahead and back again, Step by step, I move on. Is this okay? I mean, the way it, I, with the all right. So the, the the second one I'm going to read is um, is titled "Sunday Like No Other," and it refers to. It actually has a subtitle: Baltimore, 1981. It refers to the uh, day, December 18 of that year, when martial law was introduced in Poland. And it, it's based actually on a, a real event of our friend, also a scientist, going back to Poland on that very day. I thought of reading this poem uh, when I, on Tuesday, I listened to the news and I heard the word curfew. So it brought back all these things that were happening then in Poland. Also, on the day, I was thinking, I mean, I was watching the news with tears in my eyes. I remembered when my husband and I arrived in Baltimore, our first address was Monument Street, uh, across from the Historic Society, very close to Howard Street. And this was 1981. And I, I walked on Howard Street to my uh, university at that time I worked at the University of Maryland 
And I was thinking that the street is just kind of, you know, strange. I mean, like something horrible happened there. And actually then we learned that horrible things happened then in 1968. So when I saw the news uh, on, on Tuesday, I was, you know, like taken back to those times and thinking, oh, no, not again, not again. Sunday like no other, Baltimore, 1981. Third floor, left, first door. He opens, smiling wide. She is early. His suitcases line the wall. He hasn't heard. He doesn't know. She steps over the threshold. You can't go home. This morning, the general in his dark shades declared martial law. His green eyes, his impeccable manners from old Europe. But Sarah, you will take me to the airport, right? Her car radio repeats the world news. Martial law in Poland. No travel allowed. Funds disconnected. Tanks in the streets. Solidarność bent. Curfew at 20.00. At the airport, he presents his return ticket to Warsaw. His will be the last flight. Don't go into the darkness, she repeats in her head. The call for boarding. His green eyes. Head high, he walks toward the exit. Her arm lifts and waves. The door shuts. The next poem is titled Lucky Shows Up 70 Years Later, Poland, February 2002. So that's the date when my father died in Poland. I was here and I tried to, you know, I, I don't know, find peace. I imagine what, what his last moments were. Yeah, I guess that's a way. Find peace somehow, some kind of peace. Lucky shows up 70 years later. Oh, Lucky. Good dog, good doggy. You have been away for so many years. You wag your warped tail, stretch. You want me to follow. Where are we going? Ah, towards the river, across the field, unfurled like a whitened cloth. The dew has fallen. Seems the cows are back in their sheds. It's quiet. I can still smell the milk and the dust stirred by chains, dragged on their way from the meadows. We are coming to the bridge of pine planks my father nailed together. But it is gone. Lucky, you are feathery white like the chicken you snatched when I was a teenage boy in the village, which is no more on the river that now flows through us to the Milky Way. The next poem is An Artist Paints the Event. And it was inspired by a painting encountered at the art fair in uh, Westminster, Maryland. 
and actually Harriet, who sits there, <laughs> gave it to me. So <laughs> it uh, shows the animals and the ark, Noah's ark. An artist paints the event. Where is the second turtle? Concerned that time is running out, she counts the animals. The line is casual, straying to the sides. Black rhino flanking a gray elephant. Only one hair, no rooster in sight. Why aren't they prepared? Paired up. The clouds weigh down on the massive ridges, pinned by lightning cracks in the blackened sky. At least there is no violence in the crowd. The cow, other fool, looks past the muted lion to the moose, away from the vessel and the passageway. The water is dark. Highlights fall on a blur of doves and two swans painted in the cove. Are they boarding or leaving the ark? And... Uh, our host here, Barbara, she founded uh, and is a editor-in-chief of the Baltimore Review. And this poem was some years ago published in the Baltimore Review. Okay, so let's see what else would I... Oh, okay. The sun comes out in San Luis Potosí. San Luis Potosí, it's a town in northern Mexico. I visited Mexico... Not as a typical American tourist, not on the beach. Not <laughs> I just uh, had a tour of northern part and I visited several cities with my friend who at the time worked at the University of Salamanca and um, had a tour of lectures. And I wrote a series of poems, each inspired by the city that I visited. Oh, and I need to say something. I fell in love with Mexico with the sites, with the people, and with the architecture. And um, especially with the, in the, with the churches in this churicaresque style, I will use the word here, which is a kind of overdone Baroque. It came from Spain, but there was then improved upon in Latin America. So very impressive. The sun comes out in St. Louis Potosí. The wind weakened to a murmur. A rose, unpretentious in harmonic pink, sheets of pure blue Mexican sky, and against it, ready to unzip and burst, palm leaf. Not fulfilled yet, out only three inches wrinkling in the breeze when I leave for church. Indian summer in the Churicares gold chapel. Under Madonna's soft gaze, mother's face above her infant boy, their hair dark like Signor Jesus. His body exposed in each church with blood splurged from wounds so intense I can't look again. The pudgy mouse hooks in her nipple hurts. She shivers, yet smiles at me, smiling at them. And the last poem. Darkness of her head after Gauguin was inspired by a, a painting I, I saw in a museum in Buffalo. 
And actually the title of the book, Oblige the Light, comes sort of from this poem. It's a line from the poem. Darkness of her head. On the pillow of light lies the darkness of her head. Encased in Prussian blue fear, the abundance of her golden flesh stifled under layers of green-brown. Alone like this, at the mercy of two papaus. Move, abandon the dark layers. Move away from that one. Start a new painting. Paint the mountain in its vibrato ochre, the ocean in broad ultramarine, mango pears in short strokes on the ground in the bowl, mango flowers in the long sweeps of hair. Move. Like the orchid bloom furled in the green womb, sensing its way, oblige the light. Till you can feel the spray on the wave crest, the strength of the red mountain, the scent of mango, till the stillness feels right. Thank you. Thank you, Duncan. It was a pleasure to hear you read, and I enjoy hearing what inspires the poems. That's the bonus content when you go to reading. And also, uh, we will have time after for questions and answers, so if there's any questions you'll have after, please certainly stay for that. Our next reader is James Arthur. James Arthur's poems have appeared in The New Yorker, Poetry, The New York Review of Books, The New Republic, and The American Poetry Review. He has received the Amy Lowell Traveling Poetry Scholarship, a Wallace Stegner Fellowship, a Hutter Fellowship, and a Discovery The Nation Prize. His first book, Charms Against Lightning, was published by Copper Canyon Press. Arthur lives in Baltimore and teaches in the writing seminars at Johns Hopkins University. During 2016, he will be the Fulbright Distinguished Scholar in Poetry at Queen's University, Belfast. Please welcome James Arthur. Thank you very much, Barbara. Uh, can everyone hear me okay? Have I got this at the right, the right height for everyone to hear me in the back? Yep, okay, great. Uh, Donica, it's an honor to share the stage with you. Um, I'm going to begin with a poem that's about uh, the biblical figure of Cain, uh, who according to tradition, after he uh, murders his brother Abel, is sent east into Nod. And scholars for a long time operated under the assumption that Nod must have been the name of some long-vanished country. And it's only in the 20th century with the growing understanding of the Hebrew language or reconstruction of the Hebrew language that they realized that the word in fact meant something entirely different. So this poem um, is called The Land of Nod. Growing up, I barely knew the Bible but read and reread the part when Cain drifted east or was drawn that way into a place of desolation, the land of Nod, there to begin with a wife of unknown origin 
another race of men, under the mark of God. As a boy, I thought Nod would be a place where the blue scillas would bloom gray, a country of the rack and screw, the serrated sword, where the very serving cups were bone. As a grown man, I've heard that Nod never was a nation, of Cain's offspring or anyone, but a mistranslation of wander. So Cain could go wherever and be a Nod. Far more than in God, I believe in Cain, who destroyed his own brother, and therefore in any city could have his wish and be alone. This uh, next poem is called Drone. I am the drone of a banjo's fifth string. I am the drone that gives bottom to the chanter in a highland fling. Haw, hum. I am the drone of drone itself, planted so pleasurably in the mouth. A monotone, a lodestone. I'm an MQ-9, a reaper drone, ranging wide, circling in the sky. No windows, no cockpit, no one on board. See how my hellfires fly faster than sound. I am drone, from the timble under the cicada's wing. I gather no pollen and have no sting. Arriving unheard, I haunt the sky and inseminate the queen before I die. I am a poetry that celebrates power. I bring, I bring. I bomb air, I bomb breath. My country, tis of thee I sing. This poem is a kind of, this next one's kind of a sequel to Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, so, spoiler alert, uh, uh, Frankenstein's, Frankenstein ends with the monster on his way to the North Pole uh, to live out the remainder of his life in frozen solitude. Uh, this poem catches up with him after he's changed his mind and is living in New York City. Uh, maybe, I imagine, working at an investment bank or... Um, has a condo, and he's just doing his best to make a new life for himself and fit in. Um, This poem is called Frankenstein's Monster. I'm aging very slowly because every part of me is already dead. I spent years in the Arctic eating seal fat and things better left unnamed. But now I've got money and a condo on the west side. I smell like formaldehyde. My teeth are grimy. My limbs mismatched. But I'm happy in this place where I'm one more person with panache and an ugly face. I eat well. I can walk the bridge Hart Crane walked or get drunk and not conceal it. I'm not... Boris Karloff, lurching around, a mute. I hate that guy. I get laid. Here, people suffer without believing that every stranger should have to feel it. 
The other day I walked from Cleopatra's Needle to the far side of the Harlem Mirror, thinking about the Rockefeller Center and the gigantic armillary sphere balanced on the shoulders of the Atlas statue there. My pants are fitted. My beret advances everywhere like a prow. My name isn't Frankenstein. Frankenstein was my inventor. Uh, Last summer, my family and I went I had a little field trip down to Crownsville and went to the Renaissance Fair there, um, which we loved. Um, this poem is, was inspired by that trip, and it's called Renaissance Fair. <laughs> but not so much the Renaissance as the Middle Ages. Not so much the Middle Ages as the olden times. Baronets and ladies walk the streets of this mock medieval village, mingling with wizards and with burly Viking raiders, who far from contemplating any murder, rape, or pillage, are standing in the coffee line sharing a bag of deep-fried pickles. A Morris dance unfolds on one of several outdoor stages, while vendors hawk handicrafts of colored glass and crystal. Now come the horses for the joust, hung with colors prancing. Now come the knights, some long of tooth and broad-bottomed in the saddle, but knights anyway, of equal parts, gentleness, and power. This is Camelot at its apogee, where chivalry is figured as a flower. The knights spur forward into a theater of battle. But Camelot would not be Camelot were it not unsound in some way that no enchantment could ever mend. Alas, for all the pageantry that must eventually stutter to an end. For the scotch eggs and the crab cakes and the slow-roasted mutton shoulder. Alas, for the beer tent and the dads in chainmail pushing their kids uphill in strollers in a boxy, sloping field doing duty as a parking lot. Cars and SUVs are waiting to carry their owners back, past gas stations and off-ramps, to jobs in Baltimore or D.C., or over the Chesapeake Bay Bridge to the pretty little towns that pack the eastern shore. Eight weeks of the year, the Renaissance is here. There's really... Nothing much for the other 44. Camelot is what you feel nostalgic for even before it fades. I became a father uh, four years ago. My son is turning four in three days. Um, and um, this this poem uh, is addressed to him. And uh, it's... it's uh, riffs on a book which I'm sure most, if not all of you know, which is Margaret Weiss Brown's Goodnight Moon. And in case anyone doesn't know Goodnight Moon, it's, it's a lullaby in which the narrator says goodnight to all the things of the world one after another, an old lady whispering hush, a bowl full of mush, a cow jumping over the moon. Um, so this poem is called Goodnight Moon. 
I used to be as unsentimental as anyone could be. Now I'm almost absurd, a clown, carrying you on my shoulders around and around Palmer Square, through the cold night wind, as stores lock up and begin closing down. Good night, fair trade coffee. Good night, Prada shoes. Good night soon, my little son. You're a toothy, two-foot-something sumo, a giddy, violent elf jabbing your finger at the moon, which you've begun noticing in the last week or two. Moom! Moom! For you, the word ends with a mumming as it begins. For me, beginnings and endings are getting hard to tell apart. There was another child your mom and I conceived, who'd now be reading and teaching you to read, who we threw away when he or she was smaller than a watermelon seed. The chairs, the domestic bears, the clocks, the socks, the house. Once again, a strange cow springs from the green ground, beginning the enormous leap that will carry her above the moon. I'm going to end with two last poems. Uh, This one is extremely recent. It's the first time I've read it in public. I hope I don't mess it up. (laughs) We'll find out. Um, It's called uh, Noah the Agnostic. Did it really happen the way I remember? Before the rupture and the flood, before I sent out the raven and the dove, and my family and I came down the mountain into a country we couldn't recognize, did I really go out and gather two animals of every kind? I hear them breathing across the yarrow field of time. Beasts with tapered quills and ears drawn back, or with brightly colored scales and feathers. Stranglers that moved without a sound. Lord, I said, is it possible that there's been some mistake? I'm sure you don't mean for me to save the rattlesnake and the scorpion. The secret thunder did not reply. How many generations have I seen descend from me and multiply? I can't remember who is which person's son or daughter, but I remember the rabbits that we kept alive only for slaughter. The animals start screaming. The boat begins to rise. I gather wildflowers from the valley to please my little bride. Am I nothing but another creature of the field? Am I not in the mold of the one who made me? Why would he save me from the water and let me drown in time? I am a creature who dresses himself in the hide of other creatures. And the last poem is called A Local History. Thank you very much for 
coming out and for um, for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the poems. Uh, if you have, I have copies of them, copies of my book for sale downstairs, and I will be down there uh, happily signing uh, any copies that sell. And um, thank you again for having me. Um, this poem is called A Local History. My grandmother's house was always full of flies. They'd crawl across the window or would be spinning out their noisy dying in every room. In such numbers you could sweep forever and not get all the dead flies off the floor. Downhill in a marsh of cattails and bristle-sided reeds, milkweed pods kept cracking open, leaking seed across the air, renewing the existence of their species in the way they'd done from year to year. Way back when, some hard-handed Methodist pioneer had somehow wrenched up every stone big enough to break a plow and piled them all throughout the woods, where they still were, in mounds, when I was growing up, like barrows heaped above the decomposed remains of the violent Saxon kings, whose grave goods featured large in my imagination. My grandmother's gone. Before she died, she lost her words, her house, her name. But for me, she's still a hard old woman walking downhill at dawn, long into autumn, to skinny dip in her weed-choked, freezing pond. A wall of wind, a hedge of suburban snow. My father's father's ashes are in the ground in southern Ontario. Something I read in college, and for whatever reason have not forgotten, is the Saxon barrow builders, surrounded by broken things they could admire but not rebuild, aqueducts and roads the Romans left behind, saw themselves as late arrivers, as an after-folk living on the graves of a greater folk who'd gone before. Where is the horse? Where the rider? Some now nameless Saxon wrote, grieving for a people who his own people, centuries before, had annihilated, assimilated, or driven into the sea. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was wonderful. I enjoyed your poem so much. If you'd like to hear James Arthur read In the Land of Nod, it is on at poetryfoundation.org. You can read the poem and listen to the podcast. I love listening to poems online. I think that's such a treat to be able to do that. We do have time now for questions and answers, so I hope that you will have some questions for our poets. Yes. I write haiku, and it's hard to memorize them. And, I, and this is for James. How do you memorize all these poems? You got up there, I don't know. What's he read? <laughs> um, you know, I write them. I I I write them to memorize. So I I um, a lot of my heroes, W. H. Auden in particular, is a hero of mine. Um, did it that way they they recited all their poems from memory and i um and I want to follow in their footsteps as much as I am able by using by trying to use the tools that they used and 
Um, I put a lot of rhyme in my poems. A lot of my poems, although they're not s- truly metered, uh, contain a great deal of... Um, there's a basic iambic pattern to most of my most of my um, poems, and they're, though the rhymes are not arranged symmetrically, there are many rhymes. And so I, uh, reciting the poems, I'm always just trying to uh, think about the next rhyme that's coming and and try to remember the try to remember it rhythmically. I heard Mark Dobson, I guess, and that's his last name out of Chicago. <clears throat> really related to it because even after publishing, he will edit. I do too. So you know, you're memorizing, and then every time I kind of read something in public, oh, there's friend in it. Does that re-kick your memory? I mean, well, <laughs> thank you. Uh, editing the poems does is is complicated. Once I edit the poem, I need to make sure that the version that I know is the most recent version. Uh, that I have to rewrite the rewrite the file. <laughs> you know, uh, that 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 does is sometimes difficult. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Um, I used to go to the poetry Shakespeare Library and um, Richard Hugo. I sure am, yeah. He, he would come out and uh, he'd walk right up to the podium with nothing in his hands. He'd grab a walk of 20 poems and go on China. And I would just sit there and I was just like, how can I do that? I didn't. Oh, amazing book. Thank you. I didn't. Thank you. I didn't know Hugo did that, but it really makes me happy to hear that. Yeah. Triggering town, yeah. I used to, I was a grad student in the Northwest, and I used to carry the Triggering Town with me everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh wow. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I have a question. Have one thing I. One thing I really love in poetry is imagism, and it's interesting that you mentioned that because in the first book... It's very um, difficult to hear it. I'm sorry. So the question is, in your first book, one thing that's really interesting about James Arthur's first book is that some of the imagisms, just the pure imagism he uses, he has a poem which ends like white, black, white, black. It just, it's not a story. It's just the imagism of Stevens or Woodcross Williams or Eliot. But it's interesting that Arthur mentions Auden, who is... So I was wondering, what do you think about imagism, and maybe where do you, um, where do, I guess, where do you look for, or where do you see yourself coming out in, in, in regard to that specific tradition? That's a, a great question. So uh, this gentleman asked about my relationship to imagism, and um, and he mentioned that a lot of the poems in my first book are organized around um, images specifically, um, and Auden and then asked about my relationship to Auden, who isn't often thought of as being very oriented towards images. Um, I, um, for the first few years that I wrote, I was almost exclusively concerned with um, images, uh, images in my poems. um, And at a certain point, um, I began to 
uh, I, you know, it was when I started reading Auden and Edna St. Vincent Millay and E.E. E. Cummings, it, I was struck by the fact that there were so few images in their poems that often the poems just seemed to be like a poem like Epitaph on a Tyrant by W.H. Auden is just pure rhetoric almost, and there's, there are no images, and yet I thought, and that's indisputably a poem, and it seems so tight and so well-wrought, and it, I don't experience it as being gassy or overly abstract, um, and I became very interested in that because it seemed to me that the tools that those poets were using allowed them to convey abstract ideas in a way that the techniques that I was using um, were not allowing me to convey abstract ideas. And, I mean, really, it was meter. Um, and at this point, I see myself as combining the, those two modes. I think a lot of my poems are still highly image-driven, but there's also um, they're also sort of somewhere between free verse and meter. And uh, I try to play off between those two different systems. Yeah. But you look very relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sure. Well, hi. I had a comment for James and a question for Deluda, whom I call Danka. Uh, James, see, I figured it out that you had the poems written on your sleeve. <laughs> yeah. I noticed that your sleeves were down the whole time. The <laughs> first time I went to Ireland and I studied with the Irish, this group of Irish poets, and they had readings at night. And when one poet would read without paper, like as you did, the other poets were sitting in the front row and they were they were mouthing the poems. They, they memorized not only their poems but their their friends' poems. And I I was totally blown away by that. So I don't know, is that something more the Irish do? I think it. I'm not. Uh, I'm going to be going to Ireland for the first time in my life next year. I've never. I've never been there. I. I mean, I guess several generations ago, my some of my family were from there. But um, I think I, it is very different. I mean, a lot of the a lot of Irish contemporary Irish poetry, and by contemporary, I really mean 1900 onward or just post Yeats. You know, is highly rhythmical, and. Um, Certainly seems to whether people re- recite it from memory uh, these days. I don't. I don't know. Maybe they do, but it certainly seems meant to be heard. Yeah. I had a question for So Danka, for for the everyone in the audience who may not know, because Polish was your first language. But when you first started writing poetry, were your very first poems in Polish, or were they in English, or was it difficult to make that? Well, I didn't know English until I, um, I don't know, I was already after my PhD, and I had to read literature in English, so that's when I learned English. My second language was Russian. We all had to take Russian when I was growing up in Poland. And my third language was German. I went to school with, um, you know, like you immerse in the language. So um, I started writing in English really when I was at Hopkins as a professor in biochemistry and that when I learned that actually I have a chronic disease and I won't be able to continue as a scientist. So then I kind of gave myself excuse to <laughs> use the reverse of the scientific papers that I was writing to write um, poems. Um, so that's when I really started in English. 
So now I do both. You know, I, I, I'm bilingual in that I translate both ways, but I also write in both languages. So usually when I'm in Poland, I write in Polish. <laughs> and when I'm here, I write in English. And uh, it has happened to me, there is a poem in the other book that I started writing in Polish. That's when I got on the plane, coming back from Poland to here. And somewhere over the ocean, I turned to English, totally unconsciously. You know, I did that. So that happens. <laughs> so most people just change their watches. And a lot of changes that I, you have to do. See, these days it's not so difficult, but years ago, it, you know, I didn't, couldn't go back to Poland. See, I came to the state in 1980. And really couldn't go back to Poland in 1986, I think. Because, you know, of the martial law and um, also because we stayed here. Um, and we stayed because of the martial law. So, I mean, a very complicated history thing. But these days, hey, no problem, right? If you can stand the long trip, so then it's no problem. And I wanted to comment on your memorizing the poems. When we were driving here, I was actually, uh, you know, reciting a poem that I, of a Polish poet, Broniewski, that I learned years ago in school. I, it, we had those assemblies, you know, like May 1st, you know, yesterday, May 1st, that was a big holiday in, in communist Poland. So, you know, I was to come out and recite those poems. So I do that. And, but I really don't have, I'm not courageous enough, I guess, to do it with English. Now, my mom, who is um, 80, 80 what? Eight. <laughs> she, <laughs> she recites her poems. So when she was here with, her, with the first book that I did translations for, we were at the Polish National uh, Alliance, uh, and she was reciting her poems in Polish, and I was reading the translations. So, you know, it, it's in my blood, so maybe one day, encouraged now, I'll do that too. <laughs> No. <laughs> I can tell the poem by, by Broniewski, the May 1st poem, but no. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, because both books are English only. See, like my mom's poem is bilingual. I love bilingual things. By the way, um, as Barbara mentioned, I'm a co-editor of the La Craven Review. I'm in charge of the translation section. It's, it's poetry translation section. And actually... Uh, Chris brought some handouts. Uh, the newest issue, the spring 2015, is coming out, and I can brag about the translation section. Um, we are featuring four Italian poets and both languages because it's very important to me to introduce um, foreign language poems in translation and always and facing the original, so to speak. So the issue is coming out soon, and uh, here are the flyers. By the way, this is a picture I took for the cover. <laughs> are we done? Any other questions? Okay. You, you read the poem about Noah, and um, have you done many of biblical-type poems? Uh, the, the question was whether I've... Uh, written a number of uh, biblical poems and um, I'm, the Nod, the poem about Nod and the poem about Noah may be the, the only two but um, I'm very interested in uh, 
I'm very interested in stories, and I, I, you know, I'm very, I'm, I'm interested in parables. I'm interested in myth. I'm interested in um, stories like Frankenstein. I find that, I, I find that drawing from the stories and histories that I loved when I was a child um, allow me to access some of the imaginative textures of childhood. So I often raid them raid those that's <laughs> those storehouse it is not it's it's it uh, is quite new um but it, it it's um next book yeah <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah thank you just one more quick one another thing that's proposed to me that's been the subject is that the assumption of you assume the identity of the subject That's a, a great question. The, the question was, uh, a lot of the poems are dramatic monologues from points of view other than my own, and is that something that I do a lot? Um, I, so far, I've published only one book, and there aren't, there aren't too many dramatic monologues in that book, but um, the poems that I'm writing at the moment, I have been using it a lot, and I, partly it's a way of... Um, I do it because it allows me to not write about myself because I'm just I've wrote so much about myself in my first book I was just tired of the subject of myself uh, by the time that book was published um, and dramatic monologues allow me to uh, use the rhetorical position of first person which I love uh, but not write about myself yeah. one last Question. Sure. I, I guess I was going to ask you first. I was going to ask um, Danuta. I guess do you find yourself writing about either different subjects or different emotions in one language compared to another? Um, and then for Mr. Ar- James Arthur, I guess I was just follow you know, up. The oral process does that affect how you approach your own, say, drafting, or do you? How would you? I don't think there is any difference. Um, although, I guess probably I'm not the one to answer this question. From my point of view, it's just, you know, the poems come to you, right? I mean, you kind of don't have much control when they're coming. Um, now, it, it, the fact that I'm bilingual is a problem. I had a period of time, for maybe for two years, that I couldn't really write poems because they couldn't decide if they want to be in Polish or in English. So that's how I started painting. <laughs> I started painting the poems in acrylic because I really couldn't, you know, and then it, it, it passed and I, I, you know, usually I'm really writing in English, I, would, I have to confess, yes. Because I've been here for such a long time and um, our son was born here, you know, all these emotions, um, like the cow jumping over the moon, I learned that when he was growing up. So, <laughs> I mean, all these things really take kind of get you in um, and the question to me was whether the oral aspect of my poetry has uh, a lot of influence on how I write the poems and uh, the answer is yes definitely I uh, 
for a long time the I was writing my poems just by walking around and muttering to myself and trying to hold them in my head as long as possible before actually putting them down on paper. Um, lately, I've begun experimenting with, once again, uh, using a, a laptop or a pen and paper to write because I find it's producing a slightly different poem than the sound association poem, than the poems I was writing that were just purely composed um, by memory. Uh, but for a long time, it was exclusively um, I was writing by memory, and and so absolutely it had a big influence. And at the moment, I would say that even when I'm even when I'm ostensibly working on a laptop, I'm really just kind of pacing around the room and talking to myself. And then when I have something good, I go I go type it. Yeah. Walking around poems. <laughs> yeah. I'm afraid we have to. Um... We're going to have to, to clear out. So, But you can certainly go downstairs, buy a copy of our poet's books, ask them to sign them, and maybe ask them a short question if you still have one. Um, and also, um, please uh, stop by the Baltimore Review table. We have a table downstairs, so stop and see us, say hi, and take a look at Baltimore Review 2014 and, and our website. So thank you so much for coming, everyone, and thank you to our wonderful readers. <laughs>